Welcome. Thanks for joining. I just wanted to take a moment to encourage anyone who hasn't listened to the very brief intro to the podcast to pause and do so now. It's technically the first episode and provides some helpful context about the nature of this project. So for any new listeners, I think this primer is pretty invaluable, especially considering how this podcast differs from most. I feel as though I'd be selling myself and my audience short if I didn't also comment on the decisions I've made about the way this project will exist in the world. For the moment, Impostors Anonymous begins and ends here. I've elected not to extend this project to any social media platforms as they continue to present uniquely severe and confounding barriers to communicating effectively and objectively. The jury is more than out on the dangers of the double-edged sword that is social media, and though I could spend hours on this topic, and maybe will at some point, I'll save everyone the headache and simply say that I've concluded that it's best for me to keep my distance altogether, if only in an attempt to prioritize my mental health. That being said, social media remains the most effective way to promote a podcast, or virtually anything for that matter. Considering that I would like this podcast to grow and reach as broad an audience as possible, the decision to abstain may prove to be foolish. But even so, it's the path I've decided to take, which is why I think it's important for me to take this time to suggest that if you derive any meaningful utility from this project and its aims, that you consider sharing this podcast with people in your life you feel might share a similar experience. I hope Imposters Anonymous can become more than just a drop in the ocean of content everyone is always being told they have to consume, but a means to start candid and impactful conversations about how we think about ourselves and the strange world we find ourselves in. Where this podcast goes will rely entirely on listeners being compelled enough by this line of reasoning to take the uncommon initiative to subscribe, review, and make an earnest attempt to introduce Imposters Anonymous to their relevant circles. To be honest, that's kind of exciting, and also a bit terrifying. But for better or worse, Here we are, and thanks for giving this a shot. You don't know how lucky you are being a monkey. The past is just a story we tell ourselves. Before we get started, I just want to take a moment to give a quick disclaimer about the quality of audio on this recording. It's definitely not ideal. We had some remote recording difficulties, and there's this particular background noise that I just wasn't able to isolate, wasn't able to fix, and if that's the sort of thing that tends to bother you, this might be a frustrating episode, but I found the content of it to be compelling enough that It was worth releasing in spite of its flaws. So for those of you who are here and who are willing to be patient with it, I appreciate you and I hope you still enjoy. All right. Welcome to Imposters Anonymous. Nevin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, So 2021, how are you you feeling so far? Uh, It's not gotten off super well, I think, (laughs) at at a meta level. Um, for me personally, I guess I, I, one of the memes I think I saw a little while ago was like, uh, today's December 37th of 2020, just the idea <laughs> of a kind of extension of, of that vibe and year. 
Right. And I think we're still maybe in that transition. Yeah. No, I, I feel that for sure. I think every new year kind of brings a certain renewed sense of hope. And I think that just kind of, not that this year has been totally unique this far, but that just kind of got shattered immediately. We were like, oh, this year will be better. And then, you know, the events of the past couple of weeks have kind of put a, put a damper on any sort of general optimism. But I, you know, I, I think there's still a lot there in a, in a broad sense and in a, I guess maybe a slightly longer term sense. Yeah. But, you know, it, it seems like more of the same for the most part. Right. But, you know, so is life. But yeah, just to kind of jump right into things, uh, keep it super easy on you to start. Uh, in what way do you find yourself most misunderstood? And <laughs> <laughs> in that sense, I mean, uh, I guess to put it in more applicable terms, like if a, a friend, someone who knows you well, yeah, at least in your estimation, were to try to profile you for whatever reason, what do you feel like they'd be most likely to get wrong? Yeah, it's a it's a fair question. It's a hard question. I, I guess I'll just take you. I mean, I, I don't think I have an answer is my immediate answer. Um, and that's because I, I, I'm struggling with with how to get there. I think about what my friends would think of shortcomings mm-hmm. who would be at that level. And I guess my thought is they're probably, they're probably correct about most of them. <laughs> so I guess if I'm trying to find the one, I mean, it might be a situation where something's overstated. Um, mm. uh, but I guess, and maybe this is, I think it's a two way street, but it's one of those situations where, you know, the friends that stick around for a while, obviously whatever issues you have are not so, so obstructive as to, as to be too problematic, I guess. Um, You know, certainly the short list, I guess, would be impatience. Um, And and do you feel like that is something that to you feels like a different like it's taking a different form. Like it's not that you're necessarily impatient, but there's something else that's hard to speak to or that, you know, people label it as impatience because they're like, Oh, you don't wait generally. But do you feel like that is something that's accurate for you or that it's just, you know, overstated as you said? No, I think it's fair. I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess I see it as like a, as a, bittersweet sort of thing because I think that it is it detracts in some ways I've made poor decisions in the past or rushed to judgment in situations where a steadier approach I can now see at least would have been uh, more prudent Um, at the same time I think having a personality that's a little bit sort of colored by impatience um, is something that I credit. I don't typically feel bored. Like bored is an atypical feeling for me. Right. I, sometimes when I talk with peers or just hear things generally, that seems like sometimes a majority feeling, at, at least in periods of people's lives, mm-hmm. that boredom's a sustained ongoing feeling. I don't feel yeah. like I've really had that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, maybe the pandemic's the you know the closest because we're the, there's a groundhog day effect that, that definitely adds 
some boredom and takes away a little bit of this spontaneity of of typical life. Um, but I think from being to whatever extent impatience has a productive aspect to it, mm-hmm. that pr- productive aspect has kept me going in some direction pretty much all the time. Right. And so I don't feel a lot of boredom and I feel, and I don't know that these are necessarily connected, but I, you know, I think that generally I feel a good amount of life satisfaction. I think mm-hmm. I'm a generally happy person. And so I think I might come across people, particularly people who maybe it's my second interaction with them. And it's like, Oh, he's a little, maybe a little intense, a little impatient, a little bit much perhaps, and that's all totally fair. And it might even come across as like, oh, he's angry because I might okay. be telling the story just kind of animated uh, in a certain situation. But for the most part, my actual like internal emotional state is a pretty like consistent, happy things are 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 better than they could be kind of state. And I, and I yeah. wonder to what extent I mean, that, that question has made me think about that of, of has my impatience just not allowed me to get into another sort of state of mind that's maybe more isolating or, or, or otherwise. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like you have a, do you have any trouble with stillness in a sense of like kind of doing nothing, not, not to say doing nothing, but do you feel like you always have to kind of be working towards something or task driven? Like, is that something that keeps you going and if you're not it seems like you're you're wasting time is that something that you find yeah i think there's definitely an element of that that's at play i mean i i around new year's i took like four days in a row off where i didn't do like Mm -hmm. any work and it felt like, and I don't know that this is actually the case, but it, see, it felt like the first time in like maybe two years I'd had like four continuous days of like not opening email with an intention of doing a project that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and even more than maybe two days at a time would be atypical. I, 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 I typically work on Sundays because it's a groove I got into over time. Um, so I felt like a weird guilt aspect, honestly, mm-hmm. on like day three of like, I've got to, I've got to look at emails. I've got to do this or that. Um, and so that I think affects my stillness because I, I, you know, I know in times where I've taken time, but I'm really actively doing something like if I, if I take time to like go travel or like go see friends in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. I'm not really like having those same feelings about the work or whatever, like the typical that's going on. Cause I'm, I'm actively doing something when I have those kind of still moments. And I think maybe the pandemic partially to blame for why that would be how I'm spending my four day uh, time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do feel a sense of like guilt and like a rush to get to something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I can relate to that on, on some levels and I feel like what, what is necessary for me to to take some time for for stillness in my life and granted it's something i've i've made a pretty significant effort over the past few years to do so so there's some perspective there and i I do try to meditate on a daily basis but that's you know kind of an aside but i i do feel like it is challenging for me sometimes even like on a weekend day to just like sit down on the couch for 
any extended period of time and not just kind of get antsy because, you know, there's this a thousand item list on my phone of all these things that I, you know, could and should be doing. And when I'm able to tell myself like, okay, this has value and it is important for you to spend time with yourself and to spend time not being overwhelmed by content or tasks or all of that, that that is an important thing that is going to allow you to be more productive. I feel like that enables me, but it's not necessarily my default. And I know that you're generally a pretty productive person. I know you've typically have a decent amount uh, that's demanded of you, but I just, I'm curious, like even something like to put it in a more tangible sense, like going on a walk, just like by yourself, is that something that you find difficult to do if you were just like on a regular work day, you've got things you need to do technically speaking, but that you could cut out 30 minutes an hour to just walk, you know, like, is that something that feels foreign to you or that you you find is, is relatively a part of your life? Yeah, I I don't think, I don't think that's a default for me. And I think that would be for me to do, that would definitely be a forced kind of enterprise. Um, I mean, the, the, the very real example of what does happen is like when I, and I try to go for a walk a couple of days a week, just to kind of get away from screens for a little while, I'll do it with a friend who will come to like where I live in my neighborhood or I'll go to where they live and walk around. So this is kind of, I make that a social activity rather than a stillness kind of internalization or reflection activity. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if part of that's just, I think I'm a more extroverted to the extent that's a thing, uh, person. And so sometimes, um, I'm a, a, the term has been used a verbal processor. I mean, talking things out with, with another person is very helpful for me in just my own processing. Um, it, to the extent that the other person could really like walk the entire time and, and probably say very little right. and just that I'm going, having to go through, I guess, internally the process of let me encode this message for another person to decode helps me think about it differently or, or break it down. I think, right. um, I struggle with doing that totally internally and, mm. and, and, and there's people who I work with who that's what they excel at. If you, if you close their door to their office and leave them there for three months and no one bothered them, they would be much better off um, than having social interactions. I don't, I don't know that right now I'm in that camp. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. For better yeah. or worse. No, I mean, it's definitely interesting. And, and part of the reason I ask the question, you know, in general is just, I feel like we just on average do such a poor job at judging others and their their emotional states and their, their feelings and where they're coming from, or even just why they are. And we only have our own perspective, of course, and it's just so easy for us to project onto that. And even the people that we feel like we know the best where we're like, Oh, like, yeah, I, I know Cynthia, she's, she's extroverted or, you know, she's quiet or, you know, we say these very broad things. And even when we, have these kind of relatively intimate relationships with people. It's all, all of our interactions are to some degree still with their social self, which is in theory, somewhat divergent from whatever that internally perceived self is that they have. And I don't have uh, any sort of a real hypothesis about how we could, or if we even really want to 
get more so to what people are at base, because I think a lot of that still is, and you know, another set of barriers and illusions that we put up and, and we're just telling ourselves who we are a lot of the time. And I think some people maybe come closer to, to sharing that with the world where others feel like it's very different. And I just, I'm a little curious where you feel like you fall on that spectrum. Like, not that anyone is really going to be like, yeah, I'm totally fake or anything like that, but yeah. to say that there's, it feels like a fine line between like Nevin, when you're just sitting at home by yourself and your thoughts and then the way that you interact with the world. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, my mind kind of takes that to, I, I wonder about maybe like the logical extremes of that and, and how best we really define who a person is in a way. Mm. Is it, is it an internal monologue or, or set of, ideas or, or, or ethics? Is it the, the externalized actions that are at least in some way a result of that? You know, my, my mind goes, I guess maybe it's kind of like a, a strange hypothetical, but it's like, if there was only one man on earth and aliens like observed him from high above, I mean, the, the obviously the best way I think to understand what that person's drivers and motivations and interests were would just be to observe their actions. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. that's the first the first layer, and I wonder in that context. I mean, how much how much more is there mm-hmm. beyond that? If if over a lifetime of like actions and choices, something hasn't come to bear that would be with an unbiased observer observable, is that really mm-hmm. a, an asset of your character, I guess? Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it brings up an interesting point as far as even just comparing outcomes to intentions. And you could have two people that complete the exact same actions every single day of their lives. And then just to keep it relative, you know, people who work the exact same job, something very repetitive on a daily basis and they, they come in the clock out they're, they're doing the exact same things and if you observed them um let's just say there's limited interaction with others to keep it simple they might look identical you know and it, it does beg the question does it do we care whether or not one person is you know doing it because they are trying to provide for you know a sick nephew in a foreign country and they're just sacrificing on an everyday basis just to be able to provide that person for that person or if the other person is you know just going home and let's just say buying alcohol and and getting drunk every night but they're both doing the same job and it is provides the same amount of value to society you know it, it doesn't really matter exactly what that job is but they're fulfilling a role that that we need and do we do we value those things differently right. or is it kind of just all right well they're they're producing what they're doing is net positive and why they're doing it you know how do we feel about that or at least how do you feel about that? yeah yeah well i think i i think i object i guess maybe initially to the idea of of using the word value there I mean, if we're talking about their, and maybe it's it's easiest to talk about 
kind of realistically, if it's 24 hours in a day, let's assume everyone's asleep for a third of it. So you've got 16 hours in your day that you make to some degree choices about. We're comparing people who in half that time are doing the same thing as part of production in economy. Right. Um, they still have the other eight hours, and I and maybe that would be the easiest of the of of the three sets of eight to observe someone's actions and to really get a perception of the person. Um, so I think that's my first thought, and, and maybe that's what goes to value. If you have two people who who work in a factory and one goes home at the end of the day and buys a twelve pack and gets drunk every day, their production's the same. Hmm. Value, I think, I would use differently because maybe that value is less than worker number two who after work goes to the homeless shelter and serves meals to homeless people and goes to the tutoring center helps out you know the local community goes home mm-hmm. makes dinner for the family and and you know says says whatever their prayers and goes you know maybe maybe a reasonable society could say the person be there has higher value to society they might both still have the same economic production. And, right. and I think those distinctions are important. Um, yeah. No, and, and to be fair, I don't think it was the most elegant example because I think there are some some reasonable holes in it. And I, I definitely take your point. I think maybe what I was trying more so to get at is why they're doing what they're doing. And let's just say... Are you familiar at all with the effective altruism movement? I'm not familiar. No. Okay. Gotcha. So just to keep it simple, yeah. I, I talk about it a little more in depth in a, in a previous show. Okay. But the, the concept just being that, you know, we should do as much good as possible and that it's the amount of good that you can do in the world is, is largely dependent on the, the effectiveness of where you allocate your resources and that it makes a lot of different arguments that are more so derived from very practical ethics and, and consequentialism that if an individual, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, let's just say you were to decide today that you were going to sell all of your valuables and, you know, give away all your money to charity. And the only reason you were doing it is because you wanted people to think that you were a good person. You know, you didn't really care about the people who were going to be benefited by uh, the money that you gave. You just, it was an ego thing. And you were like, I want people to like me. I want people to think I'm great. I want a story in the local newspaper. So I'm going to do it. Does that matter that that was your reasoning? If at the end of the day, the same amount of value, if we stick with that word, is being delivered to those, like if you're saving people's lives, does it matter whether or not you're doing it? motivated or because it is something that you feel like is just good for you. And so um, just to come full circle on that, it's a lot of, it brings up kind of the the dilemma of like billionaire philanthropy in the U.S. that a lot of people have mixed feelings on where, you know, you have someone like Zuckerberg, for instance, who, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but he gave, I think, $75 million to this hospital in San Francisco they named the hospital after him and his wife. And it was the largest donation anyone's ever given to a hospital. It was hugely impactful. I'm sure saved many, many lives and improved the world in a lot of ways because he did it. 
but recently the city of San Francisco condemned him and the donation. And it was more a symbolic thing. They're thinking about maybe changing the name of the hospital away from his name because of, I mean, and sure, there's lots of fair criticisms of him as an individual and of Facebook and the work that he's done. But in a way, they kind of, you know, gave him the middle finger. And because it feels like maybe his intentions aren't great or what he's done in the world has been negative when there's definitely an argument that we maybe we shouldn't care and maybe we should still want these people who you know maybe their ethics are questionable but we want to promote people who have the most wealth to even if it is a status thing they just want a hospital named after them we still want them to give that money instead of just being like well fuck it i'm just going to hang on to it you know yeah i mean so a few things kind of strike me from that i guess i maybe one of the important points is like you know, from whose perspective are we looking at this quote unquote problem from? If you are the recipient of mm-hmm. of a donation, if you are the family who receives medical care at Zuckerberg Hospital where you otherwise would not have, um, mm-hmm. you know, the social dilemma and other related concerns about social media, I imagine are tertiary for you. That That's probably not... Mm-hmm what you're worried about. You're probably pretty thankful uh, in the immediate sense. And I, and I have to imagine even like in hindsight, well, after the fact for the fact that at a time in need, you know, means were provided to you where um, they easily, just as easily could not have been. Um, Mm -hmm. The, the example you use, you know, I, I, and maybe this is a, an observation I have with this type of movement generally, which is a bit of this, I don't want, you know, any term that I use is going to immediately wrap up other things that I'm not necessarily intending, but I, maybe the closest is just like the cancel culture terminology. I think that maybe one of my objections to it is, is, is the, is the framing and the time frame. The idea that you'd object to, Mark Zuckerberg, but you'd accept a grant from the Andrew Carnegie Foundation when Andrew Carnegie, you know, led U.S. Mm. Steel, literally purchased armies to go kill striking laborers to keep labor from being able, you know what I mean? But Andrew Carnegie and Carnegie Mellon are revered institutions. Mm. J.D. Rockefeller created a monopoly that that really negatively affected a lot of people and 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 had a pretty massive movement of wealth into a singular direction at a time where that wasn't ideal. Um, Rockefeller's endowments do quite a lot of good to this day. So mm-hmm. and and there's certainly examples that are far worse than those two men who I who I think it is an arguable point whether or not they're even really historically bad. Uh, as as men as we understand them, so I guess to me the idea that uh, I'm going out there to correct some historical wrongs, and I'm starting with Mark Zuckerberg's donation to a hospital, uh, suggests to me that you have a very limited understanding of the scope and breadth of historic wrongs that have been done, <laughs> and the institutionalization of those kind of powers. Um, mm. You know, maybe this is the easiest kind of jumping point to get into to one thing that I did kind of want to talk about, um, which is there's another term I think 
I don't think they necessarily overlap, but they're, they've been going on at the same time, which is the, the term systematic racism that I think is mm-hmm. is used really regularly right now in addressing problems, whether from our observances of the difference between the, the BLM protest in D.C. versus, you know, effectively the terrorist attack on the Capitol that occurred and, and the police response. Mm-hmm. And, and then from there, I mean, list as much as you want about how that topic's been relevant mm-hmm. it's it's a topic that's relevant to my work because uh in the context of how native americans indigenous americans is probably the, the, the most accurate way to refer to it are treated in america is probably the most easily identifiable form of systematic racism that exists mm-hmm. um and the reason for that is that their, at least political status, has really always been viewed in a, in a secondary level. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, not kind of, it very literally is a foundational part of American property law. Um, it's typically a case taught to all first year students in their property class, although it wasn't mm-hmm. for me in law school, that uh, Native Americans, indigenous Americans don't have the right to alienate, sell their land, indigenous property, because all the title to indigenous property transferred to white people when they discovered this continent. Now, I recognize how that as a concept is something, you know, the specific about it, maybe we don't talk about generally. But, you know, the the general story I think we all get even from how bad our our civics education was in in eighth grade or high school is, you know, you've got Columbus and then you've got pilgrims and then you've got the United States. At one point, beginning, Native Americans are in control and by the end they aren't. And and I think a lot else is is left out. The Supreme Court in the early 1800s said – um, you know, faced with this problem of there's a pre-existing group that has now been conquered or subjugated, how do we deal with their land rights? Um, the Supreme Court looked to Vatican law from the 1450s, where the Pope said to, and I think it was the King of Portugal, either Portugal or Spain, said, go into Africa All pagans, which would be a general term for non-Christians, who you interact with, enslave them, take their land and possession as yours. And this is referred to as the discovery doctrine. When, And this happened to be, but I I think it's intentional beyond happened to be, when ethnically white, but also religiously Christian groups went into a new area, uh, Mm -hmm. Catholic law was that it immediately became the, the property of the Catholics who had discovered it. Um, even though it wasn't Catholics necessarily, although you know you have Hernando de Soto from Spain and, and things like that, determining who quote unquote discovered America is probably a an empty gesture, anyways. Um, sure. it, it, you know, certainly wasn't a Catholic uh, doing. It wasn't like the Vatican directed all of this, but still, mm-hmm. our Supreme Court said, well, there, we have this Vatican law, this idea, the discovery doctrine. That's how we're going to handle indigenous title in America. That's still 
the foundation of American property law. So everything we've built upon is that those who preceded the whites in this country immediately lost title because of their non-white, non-Christian status. Hmm. Right. So if we want to discuss systematic racism, right. there's other examples unquestionably, but that's one just from my experience in education that, that's striking to me that, I, you know, I think I could take a pretty staunch, um, I don't even want to say conservative, maybe traditionalist when it comes to racial issues or, 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 or even more bluntly, someone who's ignorant of racial issues and point them to that. Because I think, I, I think you'd have to be really unreasonable to not see that as, right. you know, a, a, an institutionalization of a racist idea um, mm. that, that continues to exist, continues to be good law, citable law. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I think our cancel culture got us into that, and I'm not sure where we're going mm -hmm. from there. But I, I, that's, yeah. that is a point, you know, that that it, it wasn't necessarily in in what we were definitely going to discuss, but it seemed like a point that maybe was was relevant to mention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just to jump back to what you said originally, I think it's it's become one of those terms that is even taboo to even clarify you know when someone says something like systemic racism it, it's it's become almost rude or uncomfortable to say what what exactly do we mean by that um which of course is an incredibly important thing to clarify mm. but because it, it seems like i don't know how some might frame it but like putting the burden on the individual right. who has been subject to this to explain themselves or explain their, you know, the, the trouble that they've been through and their people is, is some act of privilege. And I suppose there's an argument there, but at the same time, it still presents the same problem of trying to figure out, okay, if we're saying, if we're saying something like, okay, this country was founded on, you know, the principles of, of racism or that it is still a systemically racist country today, which very well may be true. And I think a lot, maybe most people would agree about that. We still need to know what we mean by right. that. And we still have to be able to look at the laws and say, okay, what do we actually need to change in policy to rectify this? Or is that even not what we're talking about? You right. know, like, is that, is that even, what we're focused on or would that be enough? Because if it's a, an entire cultural shift, I, I kind of fall on the side of saying, I don't know if that is possible. And I don't know if that's really the goal that we aim for when we say, you know, we want to end racism or something like that, that expecting to have everyone have the same cultural perspective on everything um some sort of homogeny on that front i don't know if that's necessarily the route to go because i think if we were to be able to make the right policy change that that would come in time and it might take a generation i know that's not really what people want to hear but i think when you grow up in a certain culture where everyone is treated equally and you know your peers are of all different ethnicities and you're not being constantly, you know, there's not all these subtle things that are happening that make you think differently of them. I think that is, is ultimately where we would get to some sort of post racial society in which we could really move beyond 
you know, we could treat skin color like hair color or eye color and just be like, this is kind of irrelevant beyond, I don't know, personal preference. Um, but I guess to bring it back to the point about what systemic racism is, and to be fair, I don't have a perfect answer for that. And yeah. I don't have a, a, a great knowledge of the law, to be honest, to, to speak to that in a totally clear way. I mean, and I think what you just brought up is a great example because I don't, there's not much room for debate, right. you know, right. when, you, when you bring up something like that, it's like, okay, that's obvious. And I think, you know, it's to have any sort of a discussion to, to bring it back to something that often comes up is like when people talk about reparations, which incredibly controversial topic, but an important one. And I don't have a firm stance on it, but I think it would be impossible to talk about reparations for the descendants of, you know, black Americans um, who, I guess the descendants of slaves in America without also having a conversation about reparations to indigenous Americans. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, it seems as though those would have to go hand in hand and it's not to like have a, some sort of suffering competition or anything, but it, you have to treat, you would have to treat these situations somewhat similar and you would have to yeah. try to be able to trace it back to, you know, institutional insults. And it would just be an incredibly complicated and difficult thing to figure out. Right and to decide who's eligible for it. And, you know, I, I think it's something I can even speak to that I haven't in the past is that like, who, so let's just say, I'll say that half of my family is, is, is black. And uh, for whatever you want to call me, I don't know, but my father was born in Jamaica and that, you know, is not, technically that does not make me a descendant of uh black american slaves and though his parents and you know their parents and their parents most likely were slaves in jamaica under you know british or, or french rule or you right. know under some other influence and a few generations back did come from africa but do we do we draw a line there do we right. say that uh, is it about what happened? Like, is it about the insult of slavery or is it the fact that I have lived the majority of my life being considered black and being treated black in America? And is it about that, you know, is it about some sort of persistence that racism is alive and well today and that it has been more difficult for me for someone who was equally privileged in all other ways besides skin color in America and that I deserve some sort of you know, reparation for that? Or is it about people who have been directly impacted by, you know, the, the fallout after, you know, slavery was abolished and all of the, all of the fucking institutional, very real problems that existed for those people. You know, right. it's, I know I'm getting pretty deep into the weeds here on this one, um, but it's, it's just very complicated stuff. And if we do want to have conversations about systemic racism or, or how to repair it or reparations or, where to go, uh, I think it has to come from a place of being willing to say, being willing to talk about it openly and say, okay, these are the actual policies, the laws, the things that have happened in the past are the things that are still in place now that we need to rectify to, to get ourselves to a sort of society in which things are actually non-discriminatory. Yeah. Well, no, I, 
lots of great points there. And, and, and one of the, I mean, to go back to, I guess, the, the Jamaica specific example that, that that's specific to you, but even if we, if we take that away, I mean, it's certainly still an example of, of the African diaspora, right? I mean, it's still mm. it, it, the root problem there, I would argue at least, I think is the same. Mm. Um, the responsible party is perhaps different, right? Maybe that's the French government. Um, mm. And then we get into complexities about. Right. Um, so, so that's one thing. Another is, you know, in considering these determinations as to how these policies might work, it's always important to think about who the decision maker is, who, who, mm. who's setting the policies, who's, who's keeping track, and what's their economic or political interest or ends. Um, mm. I can't speak as, uh, nearly as much uh, to uh, the legal status, I mean, the civil rights movement and things like that. Certainly there's points like that that are touched on, on in law school. Um, mm -hmm. What might be more helpful for me, I, I guess, is to go to one of your points of how would we keep track and would there be some sort of ancestral linkage requirement? You know, the way that it works for for indigenous Americans, there's this idea of blood quantum. That's that's the term that's that's legally cognified. Your blood mm. quantum of Indian blood, and again, Indian blood being what the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a department in D.C. within the mm. Department of Interior, part of an executive branch of government, whatever the historically speaking white bureaucrat sitting in DC determines is Indian blood is Indian blood and the percentage mm -hmm. is required for certain benefits. These determinations haven't been made by the tribes or indigenous people overwhelmingly. Right. They've been made by these removed bureaucrats. Now, over time you have certain decisions that are made. And this is relevant, I think, to the to our previous point where uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has a racial preference where they'll hire a Indian candidate over a non-Indian candidate. Um, mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is a, is a congressionally based policy. They want people who are affected by decisions made by the Bureau of Indian Affairs to be making those decisions. Mm -hmm. And so they want more members of federally recognized Indian tribes within the department, within the Bureau, in decision-making capacities on the belief, whether correct or incorrect, that they're going to make mm -hmm. better decisions. Now, one could observe that at least one of the outcomes of that has been that the already existing power dynamics among federally recognized Indian tribes, and right now there's like 570, oh. um, which most people don't recognize that, that there could even possibly be that many. Um, if you were to say start on a given date and say, as of today, we're hiring Indians, members of, of fairly recognized Indian tribes to come work mm. for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. You're immediately going to have a leg up if you have college education, right? As someone right. applying for that job or a law school education. If you already have that, you probably already come from an advantaged group among those 570 tribes. 
Exactly. Right. And so let's let's take mm-hmm. that to its logical conclusion. You have those that have among your your this this pool of candidates who get preference to then go make the decisions about who gets what. And then we have some surprise that the outcomes aren't starkly different than they were before. Well, you've put into control those who benefited to some degree from what already was the case and who now can craft policy and decisions to continue to some degree to keep those within that community in power in power. Now, I don't think it's necessarily the case that you know there's the, there's the idea that a high tide raises all boats. You could have very, you know, among the, the the group we're talking about, quote unquote, privileged people among that group make decisions that still benefit the bottom ten percent. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think that's even within question. But if you had the decision makers coming from that bottom ten percent, I think it's much more likely. Right. Um, and so that's one of the one of the complexities with these things, right? Is is I think an overly simplified view of again the majority white male representatives in the American legislature is we're having this issue of a perceived racial bias within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. We'll just hire Indians and that will fix it. Hmm. Hasn't worked. Right. And so, um, and there's obviously, I mean, all of this is an oversimplification with other variables, right? You know, there's still a, a great amount of shackling of what those people in those institutions are really able to do. There hasn't been a Native American president to really open up the policy that department can do. Yeah. Uh, Biden has appointed for the first time in history a Native American to actually lead the Department of Interior, which is a really major mm-hmm. step. And people within this industry are excited because someone who grew up on or, or, or has some personal experience on an Indian reservation making decisions for – not just the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but all land holdings within the United States, national parks and otherwise, mm-hmm. um, might be better than the guy who grew up in suburban New Jersey, went to Princeton and then Harvard Law, worked at a big law firm in New York City, and then got a nice government job. Right. Those, right. And and that's even removing – what am I removing? I'm removing that person's gender and that person's race. Those things irrespective, right. simply that background I think mm-hmm. – um, you you enter with different maybe priorities, different motivations. Yeah. Yeah. Just to jump in before I forget, I think it's something I've I've talked about in a little bit of depth in a previous episode, but I think it's an incredibly important point to hone in on whenever you have a conversation of this sort of nature. It's just that it really illustrates the danger of categorizing people by race you know purely that because we assume that okay we're going to have some you know indigenous americans be a part of this decision making and that will solve problems not correcting for any of the other possible variables there and assuming that that somehow that there's some sort of homogeny there across the board purely based on race which is actually quite white you know in its in its most pure form and we're assuming so many things that that aren't fair and i think we start to lose and granted this is a this is a personal perspective but i feel like a lot of these issues and maybe it's different a little bit with this particular one because i don't know that much about it to be honest but that most of our issues are issues of wealth and, and resource inequality 
more so than anything else. And that's once again, a personal opinion, but I feel like we, we often lose sight of what privilege really looks like on that front and how, how different people's experiences can be based on the resources that are accessible to them and the environment in which they grow up in, regardless of immutable things like, like race or, or gender. And, you know, it, it just comparing two individuals and, and assuming that their experience in life will be somewhat similar because of their race, once again, is quite racist. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that just creates such huge barriers when you're trying to solve problems like this, when we, you know, just to keep it relevant, even like to this year, when we say things like, oh, the, the black vote or the Hispanic vote, it's like, what, what are we talking about? Why are we saying this? You know, and I get that we're trying to describe and segment populations, but this assumption that everyone that comes from a certain race, only just their racial background is going to decide how they vote politically, you know, that they should be lumped together. The Hispanic one is honestly the most comically racist one, because it's like, these are incredibly unique and different groups that there's so many different kinds of Hispanic people. Yeah. I mean, even the term Hispanic and, and and I, and obviously there's no, and I assume no, and, and even presume no intentionality on this, but even using the term Hispanic, which is in reference to Spain, to refer right. to people from Latin and South America, right, who are probably mixed with indigenous populations from there, perhaps mixed with right. African slave trade, uh, particularly talking about Brazilian Portuguese people, right, to refer to them in reference to a continent that they might have no connection and, and what connection they have is perhaps a negative one is right. in a sense, you know, that linguistic uh, institutionalization of racism, right? I, I, I've always mm. been struck just the term Hispanic is all, and the same with Caucasian, obviously different in a, in a power dynamic. But when you look at what these terms literally mean, and, and literal meaning and common parlance, obviously common parlance is more important, how we understand terms in, in language. But mm. Caucasian is in reference to the Caucasus Mountains, right? Which is like, I, I believe, part of Armenia and Georgia, and so when you're referring to a person who is literally Caucasian, you're talking about the Kardashians. That's who you're talking about, <laughs> who I don't think most you know, Anglos would consider necessarily entirely white. That's a, that's a type of almost Middle Eastern uh, type of ethnicity. And yet that term, through a weird history and, and just repeated use without perhaps enough thought, now encapsulates right. all of white people. Mm-hmm. And then Hispanic, which in some cases has absolutely no relationship <laughs> to the people right. being described, is, is used to describe this other group. It's very, it's very strange to me how those things have come to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's incredibly interesting to kind of get into the weeds on that sort of thing. But just to kind of come back around on my point, this sort of assumption that individuals, and if we're just if the only variable we're correcting for it is race and you have one individual who, you know, both parents went to Ivy League universities and, you know, they grew up in one of the top school districts in the nation and, you know, reading was always promoted, books were always available, any sort of, you know, developmental classes, resources, cello lessons, whatever they needed, it was given to them 
They, you know, had lots of positive role models in their lives. And then you have one who, you know, maybe at best has one parent who's around some of the time working multiple jobs, dealing with drug abuse, having no investment, no one to look up to and, and just say, okay, we're just going to correct for race here and we can decide, okay, who is, who has a fundamentally more privileged starting point. There's not really a, that strong of an argument there. And I get that this kind of an extreme example, and that's not typically how people think about it, but assuming to suggest that one person that, you know, the one person who has all of these other disadvantages is still still has one more advantage that trumps all the others, once again, actually feels quite racist, right? You know, to say that like an individual's, I guess we'll just make it clear, whiteness would make them, you know, somehow ultimately far more privileged than anyone else could ever be from any other racial group that is considered a minority or historically oppressed, even if all those other things that matter so much were to go right for that individual that are purely based on luck. You know, it's just how, you know, they didn't choose any of these things. It's just how they were brought into the world. Um, and so when we speak, you know, that's just one of the things that we kind of turned a blind eye to when we speak broadly about race and to bring it back to what you said about, you know, the indigenous Americans that are selecting to, to, you know, have say in policy or whatever that, you know, these individuals who are coming from a still a state of privilege compared to the their you know fellow indigenous americans aren't it's not solving the problem we're not getting more representation from underprivileged people per se you know and sure it's all proportional but we still have to get down to the to the fact of of wealth inequality in this country which is massive and, and growing and a huge problem and until we have real representation and we feel like we understand the the views and needs of those who just start from zero in a lot of circumstances or just start from a completely different point from those who start with all of those great advantages and expectations in life it, it's just we're going to continue to have this problem where we have all of these you know i'll say you know elites who kind of try to decide what is best for those who have less and they just keep just swinging and missing every fucking time, you know, um, it, it's, it's definitely frustrating to see and it's either easier said than done to fix, but it just seems like something that doesn't get acknowledged enough. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, yeah, the wealth inequality point is certainly, I think what I was referencing in terms of the, you know, the relative privilege among indigenous groups and, and, you know, the term it's all relative, probably is a, a good preface and precursor to this entire conversation and maybe maybe all human conversations <laughs> really um because certainly you know i, I take your point that's that's still a, a group that's historically historically marginalized is a term that i do like i, I think mm. in these conversations because um i think it's inherently a macro rather than a micro term like, I don't think you mm. refer to an individual like you, Brandon, in your yeah. life. As, have, I think that maybe maybe would still apply, but I think it really that, – that's a term that seems almost always used in these macro senses. And it's, it's kind of entirely looking backwards. It isn't a, a necessary reflection on the state of things today. Maybe a good example would be 
and part of this is where we want to put the brackets of time for this assessment. Mm-hmm. If you want to go a, a pretty, I mean, we could say 500 years, mm-hmm. Jewish people are a historically marginalized and oppressed group. Right. And, and, and if you grow, and I think if you continue to grow that line out, that only continues to be the case for 500 years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that still continues. I mean, and then uh, oppression in a very literal form through through the 1900s, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, would a lot of people day to day in in maybe their anecdotal interactions with with Jewish people they know feel like that individual is is oppressed or marginalized? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that room for that individualization and also that room for change within a macro group, I think is healthy mm-hmm. to allow linguistically, um, to, right. this is a point that, that struck me as more recently, um, I watching like some of those ancient aliens kind of shows, <laughs> <laughs> honestly but but some of these things right. of like let's learn about the nubian pyramids and i'm like what the fuck are the nubian pyramids there's this no this massive pyramid range that that went down way past where egypt was uh with these great african kings and queens who built like a really impressive amount of structures that is mm-hmm. not part of by my understanding most most american education right. i wonder to what degree that I use that specific example because from my you know third party view it seems like the start of black history in public education is on a is on a slave ship that's the beginning of that right. storyline mm-hmm. and and I think that's inherently oppressive if your story starts right. where you're already captive on a ship at a certain date and and then everything afterwards is kind of pretty bad and then marginally gets mm-hmm. better in the very most recent point um i can certainly understand how how that can build a perspective that at least would be different than if students recognized that there was like some really awesome <laughs> empires right. and leaders and accomplishments in what would be their ancestral place um mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's an example of kind of a, a victor's writing the history. Um, and that's even true because I don't think we get into the depths of, um, you know, one of the examples, I think it's the Rhodes Scholarship. Rhodes, his name was Rhodes, there was the country Rhodesia, um, mm. which was literally after him. Uh as this European who, and I, I don't know the specifics like I probably should, and maybe that's my point, um, you know, this kind of industrialist who comes in and effectively gets to, to have a country in Africa named after him, and the people there are certainly not benefiting uh, along the way. And now there's the Rhodes Scholarship, right, which is probably the most acclaimed academic scholarship you can get as a student mm-hmm. um, to go study typically in, in Oxford. Um you know the, those types of things, and and the lack of 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 knowledge we have about them, the positives and negatives I think of some of those experiences that that predate or go alongside the American um, story, I think are really helpful context that would maybe change both you know what other people view uh, you know Black Americans' experience and histories to be, but but 
I would, I would presume uh, how those people view themselves internally. Um, mm. And that's, a, that's an experience that I don't think is typically shared, maybe at least for the Anglo or French descendant whites. It isn't like there's this great Russian history that we're taught in American school either, right? Or, or mm. here's, the, here's how the Balkans went from zero CE to now. Uh, right. It is England and France focused um, for, sure. for reasons that are not entirely clear, frankly, because that's yeah. really not the makeup of the United States at large today. I, I, mm. So, yeah, all of that's strange, and, and it's all continued institutional decisions. I mean, we, when we think about, like, I think particularly – public education public education i think you know by my understanding and again this is not a world that i like exist in so i'm, I'm talking externally from it has sort of been led by more politically progressive or or you know if if, if in a party like democrat people mm-hmm. for a pretty long period of time now in in, in america one would think that those decision makers in that place, we wouldn't necessarily have these problems or have them in the same way we do. You know, how much has the curriculum changed about the extent we're taught world history since 1967 mm-hmm. or since 1988? I, I don't know, um, but I don't feel like I know a whole lot more about those things than my mom does, I guess, <laughs> right? Um, outside of uh, desire to learn those things myself or in college or in law school. And and when we're talking about college and law school, those are just not opportunities that, you know, 80% of people don't go to college mm-hmm. in the United States. So we can't expect college to pick up that load for everyone. I think that's an unreasonable expectation. And so that's really a change of like pre-K through 12 education and how that as really like the, the primary mean that I think the state acting on behalf of society gets, you know, obviously the literal word to educate its populace. Um, I don't think it's doing a great job. <laughs> I think a lot of modern events suggest that. Yeah. You, uh, you bring up a lot of interesting points there and just to honestly pivot a little bit, but still in, in quite a related realm as far as what we were talking about previously in regards to outcomes and what this all really means and how it kind of manifests itself. Something I did want to touch on, especially from your perspective, just to see what that's like, that just the simple fact that there's roughly 2.3 million people incarcerated in the US and just about 1.3 million licensed lawyers. And I'm just curious what that relationship between those two numbers means to you. Yeah. No, I think this is a really incredible question. And and maybe a, a look behind the mirror. I, I have seen this question before and given it a little bit of thought um, in preparation. It certainly goes to, I mean, I think my first observations, maybe the the most obvious, and I'll try to go from there into what might be less. Mm-hmm. Um, the process of becoming a lawyer is one that is riddled with gatekeeping. Mm. 
and I think this goes to your point about class, it's so expensive a proposition standing on the outside of the gates to go for three more. I mean, you've, you know, you're sitting there as someone who just finished four years of education. You're going to go do three more that's in many cases, in terms of tuition, at least twice as much if you're going to private institution. I, I went from a state undergraduate school to a private law school. So it was almost a 10 time increase in tuition. Um, and that's not to speak about cost of living of where you decide to go. So that's the very, I mean, the very literal cost of going and doing this is very high. Even the steps building up to it, which is you have to take a specialized test. That's an expensive test. You have to pay lots of registration fees. You have to pay to upload your transcript. You have to pay for them to send your transcript to a law school mm. each time. And so the process for me to take tests and apply for law school was off the top of my head close to like $2,500. Right. For a student who is on student loans, as I was, and who's not receiving I don't know if you call it an allowance or a stipend or whatever other term for parental or outside help. Uh, there's there isn't a built-in expense of three thousand dollars to pay for this process, right? Um, so that has to come from somewhere, and and that's beyond the perceptive barrier of the of 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 the path. That's the first barrier, mm-hmm. and then they just continue. On. And so there's there's just not a lot of people, and this is probably a good thing, I guess, who want to take on $200,000 in personal debt uh, for their profession. That's an odd thing to want to do, I think. Um, it's not a consideration so much if you're not taking on debt and your parents are paying for it. Right. And that's the case for a tremendous amount of people who I went to law school with. Um so when we're talking about that population of attorneys, we're overwhelmingly speaking about a group of people who these class-based barriers to entry didn't stop them, and probably because they weren't really designed for them. They were designed to keep out others. Uh, the legal profession, I think, from my understanding of it, is, is insular um, in the sense that so many people's parent and parents' parent were, were attorneys. I mean, these are usually descendant lines of a profession in a way that's sort of not the norm anymore. I mean, I guess historically, like you'd have craftspeople and if the father would teach the son how to do the craft and you'd have generations of that. But certainly I think the Industrial Revolution kind of did away with, with that as the norm. And so for this kind of you know professional service to still have in some ways, like a legacy system, maybe is a way of referring to it, is one form of, of, of barrier to entry. If you're already in that profession, you're probably in the upper class relative wealth um, or, or potentially have good access to power, if not through direct wealth. Mm-hmm. And so you create an institution and even the gateway into it, which is going to benefit your children and your children's children. And I don't know that that's entirely conscious or unconscious, but that's the way that it certainly has worked. Mm-hmm. That population just largely is not connected with or 
coming from a group that has a lot of overlap typically with your other population, right? Right. Incarcerated people who largely come from lower income, right? There's no gatekeeping to, to, to going to jail. It's a very easy thing to do. Um, and, and indeed the gatekeeping is almost in getting out of jail. It's very easy to get in. It's very difficult and very costly to get out, right? Mm -hmm. If there's gatekeeping. So we're talking about, you know, beyond those things, which are held in common, these are all, we can assume like United States citizens. These are all human beings. These are all people alive at the same period in time. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the, I guess the quote unquote average or maybe the median or the randomly selected attorney is likely to have within that context of people already in that same pool, a tremendous amount of things in common mm -hmm. with the person who's in jail. And I think that that, and maybe not in jail, but like, you know, a long time in prison for violent offenses maybe, or, or whatever, however that group might, you might want to put together. That's not to admonish the imprisoned group. Um, these two populations just don't tend to come from the same place. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the, the beginning and maybe even the end of, of the disconnection between them. Uh, my experience, which is, which is obviously all I can really uh, attest to is that there was a lot of kids who, who I went to law school with, and I was, I was fortunate to go to a law school that had a public service office that was really well resourced and really active. And what they did is they gave these kids, um, and I, I use the term kid for like even myself at this point, that's not like a, a pejorative <laughs> or negative in my view. Um, they gave these kids who don't come from traditional backgrounds, uh, including one of my classmates who um, had a, a weapon related offense in his past and, and had to deal with, with the judiciary system from that position gives those people an opportunity in law school and not, and not a, an opportunity they're ill-prepared for. These are otherwise, they were all really qualified college students, mm -hmm. um, but were drawn to the law, I think, at least in part because of their background and, and, and wealth of experiences to represent people like themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and so my law school was good about bringing those people in, and they had very different perspectives, not surprisingly, I think than what you could maybe refer to as like the old guard, the 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 kind of status quo uh, admitted student to a decently prestigious uh, private school, law school in a in a relatively wealthy area. Mm -hmm. um, those were very different groups of people. Uh, and so I, I don't know that every law school is that way, and, and I imagine there's some law schools that might be more public interest focused where maybe even a majority of those students are from that. And, and what I'm saying really doesn't apply to that school or that population or the kind of attorneys they become. I think that's – I think that would be the exception. And so when you start with you know, all attorneys had to go to law school, right? So that's the, the initial you – know, to become a, part of that population you're referring to. You had to be allowed through this institution, which is controlled by those already in the profession to the benefit of those who they want to be in the profession. Mm -hmm. It's it, the, the legal profession, and this might sound kind of stupid, but, but it, I think it goes into it, is not controlled by people in jail. 
right? right? It's not the inmates who determine who gets to pass the bar exam. Um, if it were, at best, I think we might see more ethics as a consideration to who becomes lawyers. I think the, incar- the average incarcerated person might be a lot more concerned about, is my attorney an ethical person who's going to actually represent my best interest? Uh, when it comes to the plea bargain with the, the district attorney, or is he just trying to get papers off his desk? That's a much more pragmatic and 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 effective concern for the person suffering the consequence than, for example, the civil attorney who works for State Farm, who really doesn't care which way the case goes. It's all going to be written off. The person who's dealing with it's going to tell their boss, who's going to tell their boss, who's going to go 10 more levels up before anyone cares about this financial, and it's an entirely financial impact. Mm-hmm. That's what most attorneys do. Most attorneys are civil attorneys. Most attorneys deal with money already in the position of those who have. Right. And so when we talk about you know criminal defense attorneys, we're talking about less than 5% of the profession. Uh, I think that's different than what most people perceive the legal profession to be. Uh, Definitely. And, and I think, you know, that group within the larger group of attorneys, I think you're much more likely to find uh, diversity of background in particular, I mean, diversity of experiences before law school, uh, diversity of uh, what it is exactly they're trying to do with their law degree. I think I, if you really, frankly, um, were able to get an answer out of most attorneys or maybe people right out of law school, the reason is is because it's a good job that that has good mm-hmm. financial, you know, prospects relative to other jobs. That's why most people have a job, yeah. <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> um, I mean, or choose a job over another job or a path of another thing is in our for better or worse, and, and we can, you know, to the degree you want to get into that, in a capitalist, you know, system, whatever your human resource is, you want to uh, exploit to the most efficient way possible. Mm-hmm. Um, a perfectly efficient capitalist system would permit the largest amount of people to be able to do that, because in theory, we all benefit when individuals are able to, in a way that benefits them exploit their own talents, work ethic, what otherwise, um, intentionally for the benefit of others, but also themselves. I mean, I think that's the, that's, Mm -hmm. that's the idea. That's the, the, maybe the, I don't know if Ayn Rand school of thought necessarily, but, but I think that's capitalism at its best is, and, and what I think good conservatives would push for is is uh, you know i think that maybe that's a great kind of li- you know going back to the linguistics of these things the conservative call to action is always the equality of opportunity sure, sure. not equality of outcome mm-hmm. and i think i i think that conservatism and, and capitalism are are tied there of let's make institutions and 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 macro decisions so that as many individuals as as can be, are able to enter the market and intelligently and intentionally use what it is they've brought to the table for their benefit and then ultimately the benefit of everyone. Um, 
Yeah, we haven't I mean, seen all it, the devils and the details, I guess, about that when it comes to things like law school, right? Which is yeah. <laughs> all of the steps to get there might remove a lot of people whose intentions are let's change how the penal system works fundamentally. It's mm-hmm. difficult to go through all of those steps and have that be your key motivation, right? right. Unless you come from a position of privilege, at least financially, in which case it's less likely that you have that view, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. No, I mean, absolutely. And I think it's, it, it illuminates one thing that I, I've, I've been thinking about a bit recently. And I guess to bring it back to the example that you just provided as far as, okay, let's just say people who generally have a somewhat conservative impulse that this idea of, of equality of outcome, which I, I think is a, is, is generally a pretty, or sorry, equality of opportunity as opposed to outcome is, is a generally agreeable thing. And as that relates to uh, the general sense of a meritocracy and that a capitalist system is somewhat built on that ideal, that that would be a good thing. And I think even most people across the political spectrum would, would kind of say, okay, a meritocracy seems, seems fair um, at, at the very least. And a system in which people aren't being discriminated against and people are being rewarded for the things you said, you know, their talents, their work ethic, these things that we tend to care about and want to promote. But at the same time, to bring it back to another thing we've been talking about, or it relates specifically to your profession, that there are these kind of pockets within the market that seem to put holes in this idea of a meritocracy being a fair or good system because professions like law and finance, I think are probably the two highlights in which you could, you can very easily just put someone on a path, if you will, and not to be reductive, but there, if you wanted to, as a parent say, you know, to ensure the, the economic prosperity of an individual uh, at birth, that if you put them on a certain path based on your your pedigree and, and where you went to school and the resources that you have, you could probably funnel them into one of these two spaces without too much trouble. And that, that wouldn't necessarily be representative of something that we want to care about so much about that individual. It would be that if you, you know, just to let it play out a little bit, you know, if, if you are able to afford the right resources and get them into the right schools early and get them into the right program and how that, especially like in finance, and it's probably similar in law, I guess I just have more experience with that side of it, where if you're able just to get into the right program, like, okay, you're, you're going to go work for Goldman Sachs, you know, like it's just, it's kind of just a breeding ground. And if you can get there because you get the right scores and, you know, you have the right, you know, you look right on paper that you're, you're kind of set. And then you, you know, you kind of hit light speed after that, you know, once you're able to work for a few years and you're on a track, it's, it kind of just progresses from there. And on its face, it's like, okay, is that merit, you know, and that's the sort right. of thing that a meritocracy would reward, but it kind of misses the point to right. some extent of what we would want a meritocracy to be. Um, because there are, you know, as you spoke to these, the, the, the gatekeepers of these, uh, 
institutions, if you will, there are these things that that select for a certain type of individual with a certain type of programming or training, however you want to put it, uh, or pedigree will get through and others, regardless of their quote unquote merits, maybe won't. And it's just kind of one of those, one of those holes or inefficiencies in this idea of a meritocracy, which in, in principle, like, I feel like resonates with me, you know, like, I feel like people should be rewarded for what they do and for what they're capable of and, and all of that. But it, it, it just kind of comes back to the point that I often make that almost all of the things like uh, whichever side of nature or nurture you want to fall on, uh, as far as how you believe individuals are made or, or what, what most contributes to these outcomes, whether you say it's a 50, 50 split or you lean one way or another, these aren't really things that the individual themselves controls or decides on, you know, whether it's your developmental environment or the resources you were given or your peer group when you were young, or, you know, a lot of those things are decided for you. You don't decide your parents or your genes either. And so even if you are great at things by just purely talent, that wasn't something that you selected or developed per se either. It's just, you kind of won the lottery. And so do we do we want to reward luck? You know what I'm saying? Like, is that how can we divide these things apart? And even having like a good work ethic, sure, is admirable. But at the same time, is that something that we can remove from luck as well? That you just happen to be someone who is is naturally more driven? And, you know, it's, it's obviously more nuanced than that. Yeah. But it, it definitely, you know, it, it muddles the waters a bit when when you look at those kind of pathways that, that people tend to be able to, to funnel their, their offspring through, you right. know? That- right. Yeah. Well, and, and the, I mean, you used the term a few times in their luck, which, which, you know, there's the, I guess the old saying that I sort of subscribe to, which is that, that luck is opportunity and preparation meeting. Um, mm-hmm. It's really the combination of those two things, preparation without opportunity, um, you know, you can go in your backyard and run routes every single day to be a wide receiver in the NFL. You, you're probably never going to have an opportunity to go play in the NFL. You're probably never going to have an NFL scout walk down your street, look in your backyard and say, that guy, we're taking him, right? So, mm-hmm. and the opposite would be, you could be someone who, as you said, nature, nurture, or otherwise, at the point in which they take full responsibility for their decisions and choices are placed in a really great position. Mm-hmm. Um, but just don't do anything with it. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and that's, you know, human failings of those born into great opportunity is really interesting. I think to, to, to study <laughs> in a way, right. I mean, yeah. to those, um, I mean, the silver spoon, I guess, idea uh, I think for those who don't, speaking for myself, for those who don't necessarily come up in that background, I view that population with with a sort of like, how did you fuck that up, right? Like how, <laughs> you know, like that's seen as if only, you know, this thing you have, this opportunity you have X was given to me with all my level of preparedness, oh, the things I could do. I mean, I think that's a common a common class-based view of the of you know lower looking higher um, mm. in that sense, and I don't know that that's 
necessarily true. Um, you know, I think, I, yeah, maybe, and maybe the term responsibility is the one that I, I, I kind of want to, is kind of my answer, which is, you know, I, I, I take your point in terms of nature and nurture. Certainly there's, there's zero in my, in my, I guess, ethical, moral, whatever perspective, there's zero amount of responsibility you have for your nature, right? It's it, mm-hmm. at common law. There's like, that's the idea that the son's not guilty of the crime of the father. Mm-hmm at its worst and at its best um everyone i think inherently let's let's maybe use this example and it's it's kind of a funny one michael jordan had a son who went on to play college college basketball was a good basketball player right people looked at college you know at michael jordan's son probably more as boy the opportunity and luck and nature you had i don't know that a lot of people are looking at michael jordan's son at 14 and saying he's what he's first and last out hard worker. He's he's earned everything he's gotten. Whether or not that's true, and I can't speak to whether or not that's true, but those you know that context and that pers- that perspectives and stuff um, shaped his reality to some degree. I, I, I think, um, and so that's maybe one element of this is that, and I don't know that either are reality, but there's the internal reality of those things, and there's the external reality. Mm-hmm. Other people might see you or me or whoever as having a vast amount more opportunity. And again, maybe this is because of classifications being assigned to them that are too broad and nonspecific right. that then excuse or are used as rationalizations for whatever else, right? The the success mm-hmm. or failures that they've they've endured. I think there has to come a time and there has to be a factor that's considered – which is, you know, at what point are you a product of your environment without responsibility? Right. I wouldn't point to the seven-year-old who's had a terrible upbringing and say, you know, you really should have made some better choices, though. I probably wouldn't do that. I think that's probably unreasonable. Right. And maybe the 14-year-old, that's also a little bit unreasonable, but less so, right? Mm-hmm. The 18-year-old, society at least, legally has decided – Hey, mm-hmm. it's you now. Right. You don't get to say, "Oh, but quite as much at least." Right. And so and I think yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, just to jump in. I mean, and granted, I don't think we necessarily have to get too into the weeds on it because there's no way to really quantify it, but I guess my broad understanding of it, and I, I'm no expert in the area by any stretch, but this idea that what we're talking about is let's just say even if it's 10% of what makes the individual and their outcomes that in a way it kind of pales in comparison to the to the other 90% even if we're saying f- straight up 50 is nature and then 40 is nurture up to the age of 12 you know what i'm saying we're like just from a psychological perspective it's so much of what makes an individual who they are is is already decided in these very critical developmental stages where sure we're not saying there's no agency past 12 you know no we're not saying that no one is that you're just are what you are then and you, you don't change or develop or evolve but as far as what your kind of default mode network is i think it's my understanding is that it's pretty decided at that point and sure you can diverge from that from having 
different influences and a different environment and exposure to different things and you can you can fight where your default is but what your default is is incredibly valuable you know and it's something that i can even speak to myself i i think one great privilege that i have not to pat myself on the back because i didn't do anything to have it i just tend to be a relatively patient person and you know my parents say that i was like that when i was a baby i was pretty quiet pretty laid back it, you know, generally wasn't phased by too much. And there's, there's nothing that I have ever done to, th that I can speak to that because I was kind of a calm baby. I can't like, that's not, you know, an ego trip. It's just kind of how things were. And sure. And, and granted you could say, all right, well, you're someone who also has spent time working on this since then as an adult. And as I even mentioned at the beginning, like I spend time, meditating i've done a lot of things on that spectrum in my life to kind of cultivate this thing that i already have but a lot of that you could argue is very much driven from the fact that those things come naturally to me so like when i sat down to meditate for the first time it was something that resonated with me and was a valuable experience that wasn't like psychologically painful whereas another individual who tries this and it's just it's fucking awful or, you know, right. they can't get out of their head or, you know, there's nothing there for them and they just move on from it, that we're just working from very different points. And so for me, I can be like, well, you know, I do this every day. Like if you did that, you know, you might be able to be a little bit more patient or mindful in your everyday life. But um, similar to a common example that I've heard where we talk about, you know, how much a child read when they were little and that, that being like a pretty significant factor in regards to their outcomes in life but that a lot of essentially like 50 percent of what we traditionally would prescribe to nature actually or would prescribe to nurture actually can be attributed sorry um to nature because you know, the, the child who you sit down with, you know, at age three and you read to them and they just have a huge appetite for it. And you just read to them and they're just like, just keep going. You could read book after book and they just sit there and eat it up. And then another kid who, you know, you read one page and they're fidgeting, they're rolling around in their bed, they want to do something else. You're not going to read to that kid as much. Yeah. And so even like what your parents are doing where you'd be like, wow, my parents didn't read to me enough when I was a kid. But a lot of that might have had to do with you just weren't the easiest kid to read to. And it's not to like put the blame on that, but it's just right. our, our individual uniqueness and how that changes the way that we are parented and the way that the world interacts with us is something that I think until recently we hadn't really studied or had much of an understanding of. And it's seeming now that sure the jury is not out entirely, but that these factors, you know, we seem to sometimes miss that a lot of, how our lives end up panning out and the way that the world interacts with us and the way that people, you know, influence us is a lot of times based on what our default is. Let me push back on you with that one. Okay. If I may. Sure. And, and and let me source the for the limited knowledge I have of your your discography from from one of your previous shows I listened to. You grew up with siblings. Mm-hmm. I did not grow up with siblings. I wonder to what extent your 
from my observations and interactions to you, social, and also from, from what you've just said, personal patience and calmness, mm-hmm. I wonder to what degree, going back to nature, nurture, that was a necessary outcome or or partially an outcome of the fact that you weren't the center of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, that attention was split and sometimes um, you needed to be patient as sibling was being dealt with instead. Mm-hmm. That was not something that I had, right? right. Um, I, and, and further growing up in a single parent home, there's even fewer perspectives at play. So rather than maybe the traditional model where, uh, father, mother make a determination to whatever extent, probably age-based, a child has some input or children, and then a determination Mm -hmm. is made. Instead, it was very often, and obviously increasing with age, a two-way communication between me and the decision maker. Mm -hmm. Um, I imagine that's different than your experience growing up. And so I think that I I would say to push back, I guess, uh, against that, and neither of us can really attest to, because of the nature of things, how we were as uh, six-month-olds. Right. I don't know that 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 there's a necessary, you know, from the from the traits we have developed since then, in the context of how we developed them. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that we that we naturally started off differently. Right. So that'd be that'd be that'd be my point A. My point B would be, and this is is anecdotal because. I, I fully recognize and agree that at large, there's this kind of the, the association with reading, early childhood reading and kind of future success. Mm. I'm a weird outlier, I guess, on that chart. I really didn't know how to read very well till third grade. Okay. Like very well at all. Mm. Um, I don't think – that that was a lacking of my mom reading to me in childhood. Again, wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't there as an external witness to observe, and I have to take her testimony <laughs> as to the right. extent that that happened. Um, I don't know necessarily why that was the case. I think a lot of the things, in, as I understand my development, have had a slight delay. I think that's more than a slight delay. Part mm-hmm. of, I think, the cause of that was um, – my mom was always suspicious, not suspicious, but but questioning of the, the quality of public education versus what alternatives might exist. We didn't necessarily have the resources for private education, but I went to a few different charter schools when I was younger. I like charter schools. They vary in quality. And the first two I was at, I can attest to, I suppose, from the fact that I didn't know how to read, were not of the highest quality. And then I went to a school that was, and I ended up being with a teacher who was, and in third grade, I went from being very bad at reading to reading above that grade level. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't look back at that, at least from where I'm at right now, as this kind of lifelong Mm -hmm. hindrance or disability in any type of way. Um, There's weird things like that that happen, I think, with people for for whatever reason. And, And maybe it's the case with me that Generally, those ma- – I mean I've never been very good at picking up a second language. I don't know that those two are necessarily connected, but I, I, I've suspected that they are, that mm-hmm. I think I, I have some slowness in 
adapting to and picking up linguistic things like that. When I do, I think they stick with me and I am able to show some proficiency and strength with them pretty quickly. But that, that buildup for me throughout my life has, has, has been often slower than my peers. Mm-hmm. Um, again, hasn't been a hindrance. I've been able to accomplish and do what I've wanted to do. Um, and, and that as a aspect of myself, I still don't know if that's nature or nurture. Um, right. is that, yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting anecdote and even I'll give my own and then come back to your point that growing up and this generally comes as a surprise to most people that know me as an adult growing up, I really didn't read much at all. Um, I don't think it was ever for a lack of capacity. I always thought I was a, a perfectly capable reader, at least at average or maybe slightly above. Um, but in a very just disinterested sense, I, I really didn't do much serious reading up until the point of honestly, when I was in college and typically that's not really a, a turn that you see you know, happen at at that point, but I was definitely someone that would fall into that category of kind of just doing the minimum on the reading front and not necessarily being super invested in digestion. And I'm not really sure why that was the case. I just remember always kind of skimming things, reading the spark notes if I could, um, doing that sort of thing. And then something changed a little bit. And Granted, there's a lot of different ways that I could maybe try to explain it that aren't all that important. And and it's not because reading was demanded of me more so in college at all, to be honest. Um, I guess a little bit of my background, I I did go to a, a private high school that I was incredibly privileged to go to. Um, granted, it was, you know, largely on scholarship and financial aid. We by no means could afford it. And, you know, I grew up on food stamps and below the poverty line and all that. But um, yeah, I, I I went to a school, a high school that was honestly probably more demanding of me than my college experience sure. was for whatever that's worth. And so it wasn't that I wasn't expected to read or that the reading increased. I just, it was the first time that I really started doing a lot of personal in-depth reading. And maybe that was me trying to find myself or evolving or whatever, you know, you might want to call it, but it was just kind of this weird turn where pretty much my whole academic career up to that point, I just really did not like reading or something I avoided where I could and just did the minimum to get the grades. Um, but that aside, I think I, I definitely do take your point. And I think maybe just to illuminate what I was trying to get at a little bit is that in my opinion, it, it does it really matter in regards to what we're, if we're trying to figure out what we want to care about and what matters in a society that we want to build and what people are responsible for, whether or not, you know, your, your reading capacity now was decided by something that was totally natural or the fact that you changed schools when you were in third grade or whenever that it's not like, you know, third grade Nevin was like, you know, that we can really 
make you responsible for and, and granted maybe I, I could degree, be, yeah maybe you could, <laughs> you could be you could be like the weird exception that you were the third grader that was like mom this school's not good enough for me uh i'm gonna take responsibility for myself and, and pull myself up and make this change you know like maybe you were that kid no. but <laughs> largely we're not holding people responsible for their their third grade selves so whether or not it was something that changed I we're generally not holding people responsible for their even, as you said, 14 or 16 year old selves. And so even if it was something that was environmental or developmental at a later stage and wasn't just nature, it's still, should we really, how much should we really care about that? And are we really going to put, you know, adult Nevin on the hook for that? And should that change how we, see you right now and what you deserve or, or you know what your value you know what i'm saying it's if, if that's still what we're trying to put into focus yeah on either side of nature and nurture it seems kind of like a similar argument to me yeah well and i'm just jotting down things as you're talking to make sure to come back around you know one thing that maybe i take a little exception to or or a distinction that I think is meaningful there is the difference maybe between taking responsibility for yourself Mm -hmm. and taking responsibility for your situation and how those two might be different. So certainly legally speaking, at least for briefly, we do hold minors accountable of their actions. So, so one of the first cases you read in in tort law, which is just kind of like civil wrongs that you would sue someone for money for, is this case where a child pulled a chair out from underneath a woman who was sitting down as she was sitting down. A classic prank. I'm sure you and I have have committed many a time with our friends at some point, right? Sure. But she fell down and she broke her hip, mm-hmm. and someone. Right, she has to go get her hip fixed. Someone has to be accountable for that, mm-hmm. at some degree, right? I mean, the, in 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 at least the way that the not has to in the Anglo-American legal <laughs> perspective, right. and the way that we figure, you know, the, the um, adversarial nature of law. She has a damage. Someone is responsible to pay for it. Well. Mm-hmm. The child, even going to the third grade example, certainly you and I in third grade could comprehend and appreciate that by removing the chair, we're risking harm to the other person. We're doing it. We've made the calculus in our head that the likely the humor value outweighs this risk of harm. And that likely is a poor judgment at any age. But as long as we're capable of making that judgment, it seems to be within – kind of the canon of, of law in this country that you're capable of being punished for making the decision. Mm-hmm. That goes a little bit back to our, our maybe one of our, our themes here of kind of the intention and outcome. Um, likewise, if, if you had a 35-year-old severely disabled man who really has no comprehension about the immediate results of any action he takes, mm-hmm. who did the same thing, despite the age difference, we wouldn't really be very likely to hold that person accountable. Maybe the person who would be legally required to be taking care of that person, a a legal guardian would be the one who's actually legally responsible, right? Mm. In in terms of this uh, uh, 
action was done. Do I feel like that's fair? Do I feel like that's fair? Hmm. Well, you're talking to someone who drank the Kool Aid, right? I mean, I went through the <laughs> I went through law school, and I'm like, I, I, yeah, I do think it's fair. I, I don't think it's the only fair. Maybe that's a more important question. I don't think this is the only fair way in which we can do things. Mm-hmm. I think it is a fair way because the court's taking into consideration in in the mind of the wrongdoer. Could you have perceived that this was going to happen? And as long as you could and made that decision for someone else, which is unjust, Mm. you should be punished for it. If you're 38 and severely developmentally disabled and cannot do that, it is unjust to punish you. That's, That's our theory of law. Or I'd say, I guess, as the two of us being American citizens, if, if nothing else. Um, that, to me, I think makes sense and is, and is just. Obviously, I think maybe where, where your mind's going and, 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 and others would be, well, the eight-year-old who pulled the chair out has no money to pay for this person's hip. Mm-hmm. Right. And a very pra- there's some practical considerations that make that, you know, taking it from philosophy on mountain high and down in kind of the real world, make it different. There's, of course, then practical things that come into account where perhaps the parents home insurance policy actually pays for the kids tort liability. Right. Who would know that? Certainly, yeah. I didn't to be fair, some of my objection there or even just my line of question yeah. is more about the responsibility or the culpability of the guardian in that situation you know what i'm saying like is it do you feel like it's fair for them to be on the hook for that action unless there was some clear negligence on their part that they could have somehow prevented it or it should have been there you know it's a great question and and, and a great question for, i mean this this would be exactly the, the line of questioning to raise in a law school class maybe maybe that's a, a quick aside the way that because i know we both attended a, the same state university the way that college classes or at least the ones i took work is different than law school law school is what's called the socratic method so the professor stands in front of the class and will call on you whether or not you're real interested in speaking yeah and now 300 of your peers are looking at you and uh, hoping that you know your previous uh, 22 years of education have given you something to say that sounds intelligent in this situation so um no your 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 point's a good one and i think would be well received in that environment the question of you know and maybe this is an aside but i I think it goes to some of our larger points i mean the the negligence or lack of negligence of the guardian is a consideration okay but i guess my my counter to you would be if not them then who you've still got someone on the ground with a broken hip You've got a 35-year-old man who, at least by our precepts, our presuppositions, right, of, of our legal system, we're we're gonna say it's unjust to blame him for that. Mm-hmm. This woman still has to pay for her hip to get fixed. Right. Who's gonna pay for it? I mean, that's a fair question. Right. I mean, is that just is the tab picked up by society at large? Does that come out of the IRS, the, you know, the U.S. Treasury? Do we just write a check to the victim? That's, a, I mean, that's a theory. If we're if we're taking all possibility, all, all possibilities aside, does society pick up the tab for the wrongdoings of of those among us who we recognize aren't capable of of making those decisions themselves? Mm-hmm. 
you know, to some degree, we're already doing that by having structures that put in place a guardian. I mean, those are legal, institutional, and procedural structures right. that would create that person who society is saying, oh, we're kind of putting the onus on you since mm-hmm. this person we're saying it's unjust to, to do so. Um, but I do take your point that there's a, at least a, a, an initial apprehension to the hypothetical well-intentioned guardian who, despite their best efforts, uh, this happens. But perhaps maybe the, the analogies fit then that the parents could have well been well-intended good parents and had a shitty little eight-year-old who ran up and, and did this, right? Right. Um, we're not blaming them. We're blaming the eight-year-old. And yet the other isn't is – it's not the case in the other situation. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean it's interesting yeah. that we have that difference. But I, I guess maybe I'm still drawn to the practical reality of if you have a legal harm, you should in 99.9% of cases, I think, have a legal remedy. And what's the remedy against the development, developmentally disabled adult if not against the guardian? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it maybe just points to my relative ignorance on this topic specifically because I don't even know. And maybe this is just a question to ask like, is there, is that a legal principle that there has to be someone who is responsible or even in a situation, like, let's just abstract it to another degree? There, this person is considered, uh, incapable of being responsible for their actions but there is no guardian there's no next of kin there's mm. no one to tie to them uh-huh. is you know is, is the the government just kind of pulling footing the bill on that or is it are we still doing everything we can to try to trace it back to someone who will then pay for the you know the negative outcomes that exist it's a great question i i think i'll I'll give a, a prefatory answer, a more specific answer, which in some senses is not consistent with the, with the preface, but I think that'll make sense. Maybe one case that, you know, I know we all have that terrible civics class, I think in 10th grade, at least in, in this state, um, where you cover maybe two or three names of Supreme Court cases that you're supposed to remember are important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them typically is, is Marbury v. Madison. Okay. And and that's the case, I think, most importantly, that sets up the idea of, of what it is exactly the Supreme Court does mm-hmm. as, as a branch of government. They are who say what the law is. Legislature mm-hmm. writes the law. Executive enforces the law. Judiciary says what it is the law is. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know, bullet point one for that case. But one of the important points that comes within it is this idea that, yeah, generally speaking, if you have, if a legal wrong has been done to you, if someone's actions or inactions and, and, and an action that they should have taken mm-hmm. harms you, you should have just caused to, to go and get those damages back. I mean, that's, I think, a foundational pillar of how we wanted the how we again I'm using a very kind of general royal we wanted the country to be as a country, which is a place that if something happens to you, you have recourse 
generally, I think that's a good thing in conflict resolution. And, and I guess the alternative is if you don't have recourse within the government structure, you will seek it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's typically right. violence. Right. And so government is run in part by taking conflict resolution's traditional solution, war, violence, and placing it in a different context, which is perhaps overly stuffy bureaucratic <laughs> processes that remove – I mean that take it out of maybe the realm of emotion and pathos and put it more in this realm of rationality and economic efficiency and, and those sort of concepts. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of my, my preface answer. The more specific answer that I think in some ways contradicts that is that if you're an incapable adult and you contract with somebody, um, that contract is very likely to be legally void, hmm. um, even if the other person acted in good faith. Didn't know that you were in contact, like, you know, there was no uh, exploitation of you, right? Let's say that you're, you're somehow, this is just this hypothetical to make it easy, profoundly disabled yet able to act as though you are not right. and go through this contracting process to even buy a house. Mm-hmm. Um, every state will have variations of law on any issue. That's an important preface. But um, in some states… Um, There'd be a presumption that that's not a valid contract because you weren't capable of making it, mm-hmm. even absent a guardian. I mean, using your example where we have this kind of the incompetent in the wild would be the maybe not too nice way of of, of referring to that. The right. incompetent who isn't already been dealt with by some other legal process to assign responsibility to to someone else. Mm-hmm. At the same time, that person who you know we don't have the guardian to blame might go out and commit torts that he would very much be liable for the damages of. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I'm I'm this idea that, that contract my ability to make you take on promises or act in reliance of something to your detriment, perhaps to a huge degree, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, I am potentially immune from any responsibility for Mm-hmm. But if I walk up to you and I pull your wallet out of your pocket and take out a dollar and hand you the wallet back, even with the same incapabilities to process the, the detriments of that action, the state might say, well, you have to give them the dollar back. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think I understand the principle of it. And I think it, <laughs> it, uh, it starts to illuminate why I'm. I'm not a lawyer and and why this stuff can be infinitely complicated and just specific to whatever the situation right. is. And that's why, you know, people like you exist to, to, you know, parse these things apart in these very, you know, nuanced and, and multivariate situations that it's not, it's not like there's a clear answer. It's not like you could just say, right. yes, in all situations, <laughs> right. this is going to be the case. And we wouldn't want that. Right. I mean, what right. it, I mean, that's, that's such a such an inflexible uh, way of the state exerting force on the populace mm-hmm. is detrimental. Right. I mean, it's it, I, I agree with you. And I think it's a frustration for people, the infinite complexity of the law to some degree. But I, I always wonder what the alternative is. If we have very clear without exception rules, mm-hmm. you know, life's exceptional, like it's full of exceptions and 
odd things that are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And if law is, and some laws are, to be clear, too rigid to take in that context mm-hmm. and make decisions that ultimately, again, the primary function, I believe, of, of the judiciary is to keep conflict resolution from being done through violent means. Right. Um, or violent means, maybe more specifically, outside of the state. The state perfectly accepts its ability to take violent action against, right, oh, yeah. through these processes. But, but mm. non-state regulated violence maybe is the best way to put it. We want it to be complex and full of exceptions and nuances because that's what life is. If life was extremely simple, I'm sure we could have you know, the Ten Commandments, if truly lived on in isolation. I don't know that they take into account the tremendous amount of other concerns that could come up in life, right? I mean, I think all of those, even the most maybe staunch kind of theolog- you know, Christian uh, theological scholar would say – you know, we, we take these in broad, in broader understandings to mean more than perhaps the words in isolation and, and with some exceptions and nuance uh, presumed. If you take that stuff out, you, I think you're really – there's a tyranny of the state or whoever's making those finite and uh, are, are, you know, definite, maybe more than finite kind of determinations in advance of whatever it is that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean it's it's clearly a necessity, or at least in my opinion. But it's it's definitely one of those things that that can be frustrating for someone who often does want you know a a clear answer or who just has a lot of questions and and anecdotes to kind of just explore. But um, I do want to ask one more question on this sure. round before we kind of have to move on because there's a few things I'd like to touch on before we yeah. wrap up. Um, but just for our audience, I'm curious if there's any particular law or, or aspect of the judicial system, which maybe you've just kind of illuminated just then, but that the average person just has a has a not very good understanding of, or that we just, whether it be because of the entertainment industry or or whatever, that we you feel like just gets quoted or thrown around a lot, or that it's just a general perception that you found to be false that would be helpful for people to know about? A part of of law school and and a thing that I learned there that really has very little relevance to what it is I do now as a lawyer, but still has stuck with me uh, personally, and I think is a point, if any, that I would speak you know, quote unquote, publicly on is uh, stop and frisk. Okay. Um, so I, at least at my law school, and I think at all law schools, students are required to take a, a criminal procedure class. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, you know, the amount of lawyers who go into criminal law is a very small wedge of the, of the, of the pie. Right. Um, but I think it's important for, for lawyers to be legally educated about criminal law generally and have some background. I only took two criminal law classes in law schools, criminal procedure and then substantive criminal law. And one of the important cases, you know, Miranda, Miranda rights, right? I mean, that's kind of probably the mm-hmm. most classic and, and 
for the average person, probably the most known criminal case to the extent they know any. The next on that list, probably for most, would be um, Terry v. Ohio, which is the, the case that created stop and frisk, which is otherwise called Terry Stops. Mm-hmm. And that case really stuck out to me. I think maybe this ties in a little bit with the the systematic racism kind of discussion earlier, just in terms of the obviousness to me of prejudice in that decision and, and, and in really what led to that case um, that, you know, prejudicial starts have prejudicial ends is maybe a, a good way of understanding it. Um, here you have a case where, a beat cop, one of these police who just sort of is, is meant to walk around an area and 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 make sure crime doesn't occur, uh, sees a black man across the street from a jewelry store who's who's acting in his in the, the police's report kind of oddly. And and the the specific term actually written as I understand it in the report is that uh, the officer didn't like the cut of his jib, which is one of these sort of you know nineteen forties wow. era kind of sayings that maybe isn't necessarily racial, although obviously in this context has has a pretty strong overtone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he walked over and he asked the guy what he was doing. And, and, and in the midst of that very brief conversation, and again, I'm, I'm kind of simplifying, I think, the facts of that just for, for what's most relevant. Um, he pats him down and discovers a, a revolver on him that I don't believe he had a, a license for. Um, the idea that would say that you can't do that as the police officer is our traditional understanding to that point of the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment is, is you know, people shall be secure in their persons, papers, and effects uh, unless there's a, a warrant issued by a neutral magistrate, a judge. Mm-hmm. To allow the state to uh, cross that line, whether it's your house, your person, what have you. This person hadn't committed any crime, right? Terry hadn't committed any crime by standing across the street from a jewelry store. Uh, And the officer didn't go through the effort of getting a warrant to search Terry, as the Fourth Mm -hmm. Amendment's literal wording would require. The Supreme Court still allowed what happened to happen and then effectively gave license to all police officers, uh, at least under the United States Constitution, not necessarily individual state constitutions, to do this um, in in what I think is an extra constitutional or a non-constitutional way, which is this practical concern. So often – we can set aside what might seem, and this, this kind of counteracts something I was saying earlier, what might seem rigid for what at the moment is most practical. Mm-hmm. When we have police officers who are worried about their personal safety in an interaction with someone, without the ability to check that person for weapons, they are at higher risk of harm. I think that's mm-hmm. a, that's a, it's fair to say that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. My view would be that the Fourth Amendment is our very definite decision that we accept that imbalance and that harm because we value the individual's liberty and privacy to some degree more than that difference in the sense of safety for the officer. Right. This is relevant to some modern events, obviously. Yeah. Um, this was, you know, a 1960s decision, maybe 
maybe 70s is around that period i think it was the 60s though um and and the result is 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 all too clear which is in major cities new york city's often cited as the primary example primarily under rudy giuliani's uh mayor time as mayor there stop and frisk was used to remove primarily brown and black populations from simply being outside in some areas mm-hmm. right i mean if you're if if you're uh, outside tiffany's rather than in harlem uh, the officer might be a little bit more likely to not like the cut of your jib and decide that it's time to see if you have weapons on you. Right. Right. And so the, 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 it, it allowed um, for the decision to be made by the officer rather than, as the Constitution prescribes, a neutral and detached magistrate. Mm-hmm. So it's the person in the heat of the moment who has 15 years, perhaps, of experience that might bias them. Fairly or unfairly, and ultimately unfairly to whoever it is that they're being biased against, mm-hmm. of how they interact with that situation. So, you know, the facts of the case were just so, to me, when we read it, evidently racially biased. So you, you have the intention there, right? Going back to intention and outcome. And in fact, we have the benefit of time to see what the outcome of this decision has been, which has been terribly racially biased and i'm just like what's the problem here i mean it isn't this so clear there's some of these things where there is more variables there is more nuance this one is is not to me i i i i don't see a tremendous amount of shades of gray to this i think stop and frisk is plainly unconstitutional i think it came about because of a racist cop wanting to do a racist thing and the record seemed pretty clear about that it was allowed and has allowed racist cops to do racist things since. Mm. There's there's not a tremendous amount of cases where I feel like it's so plainly wrong that I can't at all understand the other side. One of the things law school tries to do is get you to the place where you can say maybe about the other side's position because that's an important thing to be able to do to some degree. Right. Um, uh, however – depersonalizing you have to to be to put allow your mind to be in that place this is one that that has been strange to me um it's a policy that's changed in new york so new york city police are no longer by my understanding nypd is no longer allowed to do stop and frisk the results were that crime didn't in the immediate aftermath of that jump it wasn't as though this was some great crime fighting measure that kept people safe that's just not the case never was the case um, and so it, it's an area that I don't practice criminal law. I'll probably never practice criminal law, but to the extent that I might ever be publicly active in changing policy, I like to start with, maybe it goes back to our point about the discovery doctrine, kind of the obvious things. Let me start with the argument. I think everyone who's reasonable will agree with me on, and let's work through all of those first. <laughs> and then we can get into the weeds with the things where, Maybe it'll take some real like hashing out to figure out what's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but Terry stops are so obviously wrong to me uh, and non-beneficial even to the extent that they may be bad policy. Uh, that, that That's one that I think people should – it would be to the, 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 you know, the average citizen's benefit to understand where that comes from, understand – it's erosion of our Fourth Amendment rights, which I think, again, 
in the year 2020 in particular, um, how erosion of rights, both generally and for specific people, generally, let's talk about the NSA, right, mass surveillance of people, uh, gathering of your information and preferences on social media being sold, but then also stored by the government. And then also more specifically, direct actors deciding these people for these reasons I'm going to treat worse, and I'm going to do it under the cover of some really bad case law. Uh, I think that all builds up to to where we are um, to some degree, at least in the negative sense. So, And it's not as though all hope is lost on on that front. Um, One of the good things about courts is for the most part, um, they have to do what the legislature says with, with some exceptions. Um, Congress and, and individual states are very able to say Terry stops are illegal here. Mm. And we, the people, are the ones electing the people to go do that. That's not been done many places. And so that's where I guess my focus is, which is let's say that that the judicial branch failed in Terry v. Ohio, Ohio, right? That was a failure in a decision that has had bad outcomes. One of the reasons we have three branches of government is because we assume at times any one or more of them are going to fail and the others should check that and should also help make up for it. Right. And so this is a decision to me that's you know around 70 years old now. And it's like, gosh, it just seems like the, the, the data is so clear Maybe it's not the Supreme Court's responsibility to go back and change it. Maybe it's the it's the responsibility of the legislatures to say, you know, as the as the as the branch most responsive to the people, we just don't accept this anymore. Um, and that's one example in a long line of things that's that way. But 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 in that conversation, generally, I think public education about that point. Um, I don't think anyone likes the idea of. of stop and frisk, right? It's already probably a, a generally un, unpopular idea. But when you really express it and its history and its use and its ineffectiveness to do what it is it says it does, which is reduce crime or officer deaths, um, it's, a, it's a particularly frustrating thing that I guess is, is, is one of a short list that I would kind of yell from the, the, the roof if people would listen. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it brings up an interesting point because I think in principle and in almost every way, I, I agree with you completely. And I think, as you just mentioned, there's not a lot of support for stop and frisk at, at this point. And I guess to try to provide some balance, if there is any to be provided, it does bring up an interesting question in regards to, okay, so what do we do with these sorts of situations? And if we do, let's just say, come across uncomfortable or unexpected or just challenging data or trends in regards to criminal activity and immutable qualities, and in this case, we're talking about race, uh, if we do find correlations, even if it's something as arbitrary as we consider as hair color or the kinds of shoes that you wear, if we do find difficult data and trends that that show, okay, more crime is happening in correlation with said factors, do we handle that differently? Or do we just say, hey, this is part of the risk 
that is being assumed in this profession and we just need to deal with that in the name of the fourth amendment or is it something that we in the name of quote unquote better policing or better surveillance whether it be the nsa and you know you know people who are muslim or middle eastern right you know right there's there's a million examples of this same problem kind of just iterating itself that is this something where these institutions have some sort of responsibility to to try to do their jobs better by honing in on these these trends that that happen to be or, or maybe i mean happen is, is maybe not the right word there but that do have racial connotations or is it just as i said one of those things that we just kind of have to live with and to try to treat everyone the same as much as we can and um because that is what is most constitutional or fair uh it, it's not an easy one to solve for and of course something like stop and frisk for all the reasons you mentioned is pretty fucked you know right. but is there something else is there an alternative that would still mitigate risk and optimize for you know better policing that would not infringe upon these rights you know it's i mean i guess that's maybe too big of a question to just throw out there at this point yeah. but it's but it's a I great question, like, and it's a question worthy of, of asking, at least, right? I mean, I get, and for people, for the people to be interested in the answer of, mm-hmm. I, 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 I go back to your point that I, I agree. I don't think stop and frisk is popular. It's the law, and it's the law mm-hmm. most places. And so, if most people, most places don't like a law, and it's the law, mm-hmm. that, there seems to be an inherent imbalance there to me, right? I mean, <laughs> we create the law; it's it's all just made up by us. If most people don't like it and it doesn't really fit, and it's not only most people don't like it, but I mean, because you know, my my thought there immediately jumps to you don't want mob rule and the majority just dictating everything, right? I mean, it may have been the case in 1950 that quote unquote most people didn't want uh, uh, true equality. Mm. Uh, if we use a, a you know the majority kind of, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case, um, but setting I guess that concern aside. For the most part, if if a law is repugnant to most people, it should be removed. And maybe the the you know going to institutional responsibility, um, I think it is is an interesting and good way of putting it. You know, there's a point. What one of the authors I really like and who I've gotten into since law school is is Thomas Sowell, and, and he was um, oh, yeah. he's yeah an economist who. Went to Harvard and, and then Chicago School of, of uh, Economics, where he studied um, with Milton Friedman, who's kind of like a, a big deal in that in that world. One of the points that he makes that I think is an interesting one that's kind of in the nuance is, you know, should we focus our efforts, resources, and attention on as though these two things could be separated? And I'll argue that they can't, and I don't think that's really his thesis. But should we focus on the amount of discrimination or the, the prevalence of discrimination on whatever basis, yeah. or should the focus be on what the real impact of that discrimination can be on the discriminated, mm-hmm. right? If we consider those two as, as separate right. to some degree, is it more practical to focus on the second, which is, you know, it's really hard to maybe 
uh, get rid of deeply embedded uh, white versus black racism in the American South for reasons that there are volumes of books written for. Mm-hmm. Is it more helpful to instead focus on reducing the amount that that discrimination has an impact on that population? Right. I mean, if we have finite resources, is it best to say, let's go and and and, and I'll, I'll be a bit blunt because I, I guess I, it's funny. Let's go grab up some rednecks and try to educate them as to why they can't do, say, X, Y and Z. Or would the same resources and efforts be better placed to say, all right, what's the real power structure that that this group has over the discriminated group? Are they their employer? Are they their landlord? Do they run their utilities? Are, are they making decisions from this place of discrimination that affects them? And how can we remove that maybe piece in, in the puzzle? Um, I'm persuaded, I think, by that idea. It isn't to say that that getting rid of discrimination in the heart or mind of the of the of those who are discriminating isn't a, a valid or worthy goal. And I and I think it's perhaps more needed now in this time where I think we're really polarized and, and people are in some ways writing off those entirely uh, who have a different view. Again, we go back to your point of, is it the responsibility of the disadvantaged group to educate and inform the privilege? I, 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 not necessarily, certainly not, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a good example that, that highlights that is this. Um, I, I was reading a little bit about um, the history of like the auto industry, which is not a thing that I, I, I've, I'm not a car guy. And I guess that's the reason why I did is I've never, I guess amongst like most of my male friends, I've just never been very interested in cars or car like things. That seems like one of those maybe traditional, you know, boys like truck toys and cars and going fast and right. right, Those those kind of traditional um, uh, archetypes. And I've, I've never been huge into car stuff and realize I know, I think much less about cars than maybe the average person. So I was looking into some stories, I guess, about car stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and and one thing that I learned that was really interesting is the is the history of, of Honda as an auto brand. Okay. It had originally, and this is this is brief and on point, I promise. Um <laughs> the, the guy who started Honda was um the son of a blacksmith in like a rural town in Japan, not particularly privileged, not, I don't know what his level of formal education was. He grew up fixing motorcycle engines at his dad's blacksmith shop because blacksmiths were sort of outdated by the industrial revolution. And so Mm -hmm. his skill set transformed into working on motorcycle engines. So a young Honda developed a very good motorcycle engine from this exposure and opportunity and created a motorcycle engine brand that, that was then relatively successful within Japan. But he had a good ability to make good engines and some infrastructure to do so. And so he was trying to get into the actual like automobile car uh, game, as it were, which was I don't I don't know that there was any prominent brands in Japan at that time. He had some connections in the industry. And so one of the things he did is he had uh, someone go and talk to Henry Ford, uh, the second who's actually Henry Ford's grandson, as I recall, who was then the CEO and chairman of the board of Ford Motor Company, which this would have been 40s, 50s, I think 50s early, um, was still, you know, top three manufacturers in the world of cars. And Honda said, I will 
make engines for your cars. I'll, I'll, you can have my brand will build engines for Ford cars and kind of like a subsidiary in a way that Ford would have effectively bought a young Honda automotive to just be a, a cog in the wheel of, of the Ford machine, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, when presented with that offer, Mr. Ford said, I'll, I'll die before I have a Japs engine in my car. Mm. Right. So he was discriminatory and a, and, a, and a racist person. Right. We could try to fix that in Mr. Ford and mm. see to what effect that would be of benefit or detriment. But the story ends up good for Mr. Honda because he says, well, this racist American doesn't want me to do it. I'll just build my own thing here. And so he goes on to build Honda Automotive, which is now a market competitor and, and sometimes a larger party in, in, in the game than is Ford. So yeah. that story sort of demonstrates that the, the, the power that Ford's discrimination had over Honda really wasn't significant. Mm-hmm. In, in that situation, Ford being a racist really only was detrimental to Ford. And his shareholders, because he lost probably a really awesome opportunity to at least not have, have one fewer competitor, and if not have you know maybe better engines. I don't know the mechanics of that aspect. Mm-hmm. As, as the story went on, obviously, in the end, it wasn't to any detriment to Honda, and perhaps was to his benefit that Mr. Ford was, <laughs> was a prejudiced person, yeah. because it put him in this, you know, I don't know that, that that would necessarily be his view. And in any immediate sense, that's not a good way to view discriminatory action. But it's an interesting story, I think, in that sense of, to Thomas Sewell's point, because of the nature of, I guess, maybe global economics at that time, and what Honda was otherwise able to do, the fact that, that Ford was discriminatory really just hurt him. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe if in general we can move to a place where having discriminatory views is a is really just a market detriment for mm-hmm. you as a person that doesn't have a whole lot of quote unquote bottom line effect on those who you choose to discriminate against. Maybe that would naturally cause there to be less discrimination because it's just so economically unfeasible of a view to have, mm-hmm. right? That only literally those who grew up the grandchild of Henry Ford have have the luxury and, and privilege of, of of having such kind of outlandish and and um, inefficient ideas. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's an incredibly important point. So I'm glad that you brought it up, and maybe it'll be the topic of a of a future conversation all by itself. But you know, I, I think that it, it's something that often gets a little bit lost in the current conversation about how to rectify the wrongs of the past or how to, you know, quote unquote, fix discrimination or or racism in America. And I think whether it be a, a total focus, I think at least more focus on the outcomes as opposed to trying to change the minds of every single individual or tell people exactly how to think or the things that they ought to be saying um, as if that would be what actually changed or what made, you know, those who are the most underprivileged and discriminated against lives better. Right. I don't think that's necessarily 
the case. And it's still an important aspect of it. But as I spoke to earlier, I think even if we could snap our fingers and have, you know, eliminate all racial bias or prejudice out of everyone's minds in the country, I mean, I think that would be a wonderful thing, but we'd still be working from a place where things needed to change. And it might just have to be a generational shift. And I'm not trying to just like throw my hands up in the air and say that there's nothing we can do right now, but it's these things take time and it's not really what anyone wants to hear. But I think, as you said, if we are able to change the way that the leverage is held so that it is actually, we create a, you know, an institutional structure that makes it a disadvantage to be this way, or even largely disallows it that in over the course of a single generation, it will become taboo, but it's it's one of those things that is is of course hard to it's not it doesn't give you a whole lot to hold on to right now and but at the same time i think just more focus on the tangible and what actually can benefit individuals and listening more to what those communities need most and the ways in which they are practically suffering looking at the the low hanging fruit and saying, these are things that we can change right now that would make things better for people who are underprivileged and for people who, you know, just simple policies and laws that whether it be, you know, stop and frisk or some other educational zoning problems, you know, there's, there's lots of things that we could get into, but things that we can definitely change that would, that would to some extent level the playing field more. So um, I think are things worth focusing on. but we are, to some extent, pushing our, our time limits here. Okay. So I, I do want to try to wrap up, yeah. though. I think we could probably talk about these sorts of things ad nauseum for, for sure. a, a very long time. But um, yeah, I think I did want to finish on, um, I guess, somewhat of a recurring note. I guess first, I was just going to ask if you'd heard of Ideas Beyond Borders. No, I haven't. Not beyond not beyond your your previously asking me. <laughs> I guess you know, phrasing that as a potential question. I, I haven't heard of it, and I and I kept myself from looking it up so I could have your my understanding be, I guess, first formed by your explanation. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll give you the very short version of it, and then and I guess why it's relevant will be clear. But it's essentially a nonprofit program that provides what you might call enlightenment literature as a as a form of foreign aid in authoritarian states uh, particularly in places that are very religiously radicalized and um, theocracies and such where particularly right now and in the middle east but that they will basically translate the work of stephen pinker or sam harris or or different you know modern enlightenment thinkers and put those books, you know, in the hands of individuals who are kind of stuck within these very oppressive structures that aren't allowing them to uh, have much agency. And in the success of these programs has been, I mean, I guess maybe not surprising to some, but has been, has been something that I'm quite hopeful and, and feeling positive about. But in that vein, I guess, I'm curious if there's anything that comes to mind for you to kind of bring it back to home soil, because I think it's something that we probably still need here. Um, 
even though we are one of the freest countries in the world, that if there's any, you know, a single piece of writing that you could put in the hands of everyone in this country tomorrow, what would that be? It's a good question. It's a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a simple one, but if you have anything that, you know, it doesn't have to be the only, but one that you would you feel like would have a lot of relevance right now and that could just be net positive for everyone. Well, I keep doing this. I keep thinking of an answer that I'm like, I don't like that answer. Let me set it aside and, and search my mind for another one. But I think it, I think it's most honest and true to stick with, I guess, whatever that first one is. And, and maybe I think the word that 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 led me to this was your term kind of enlightenment or use you know use of enlightenment literature. Um, mm. It's certainly not modern, but something that I happened upon in high school that I have kind of long cited as um, maybe simplest put, it's, it's the time where I thought being smart and seeking out becoming smarter was cool. Maybe it's the first time I really came around to like, that's, that's what's cool. Mm -hmm. um as an idea you know like the the classic like you know it's the geeks who have like stuff going on or, or you're the nerds who are going places kind of thing particularly as, as maybe a, a not very good high school football player i was late to that concept <laughs> um but the 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 specific piece of writing is uh from plato uh in the republic which is his kind of super long treatise mm -hmm. but the specific story is called the allegory of the cave okay. um and it's not an overly long story. I mean, it's it's worthy of reading because I, it's it's not a terribly complex idea, but spending intentional conscious time focusing on it was was important, and I think influential for me. And, and really, it's the story is this conversation. I think it's between Plato and Aristotle mm. um, about a hypothetical. Uh, much like, I guess, a lot of what we've been doing today. And the hypothetical is uh, there's a cave, let's say it's underground. Mm -hmm. And in the cave, you have a group of people who are chained to the ground and are facing away from the entrance of the cave. So they're facing kind of a back wall mm -hmm. within this cave, locked to the ground. I've never been outside of the cave. And, and I think you can visualize this because it's, it's really not terribly it's not too much behind them is a fire mm -hmm. and there are images kind of being put past the fire that create shadows on the wall that they look at okay right so you've got these people shackled to the ground have no concept or, or experience outside of this environment and their only real perception is the wall and the shadows cast upon it that's their reality mm -hmm. and then one day the shackles on one of the people just fall off right and so the first other person stands up and looks around so it's the first moment of any perspective change from the existence of this. All information I take in is from this wall and the shadows shown on it. So they can see mm -hmm. the fire for the first time. They recognize that what they've been seeing aren't figures, but shadows of other figures. Mm -hmm. And then they recognize 
well, I, they couldn't even really recognize they're in a cave because they have no concept as to what not a cave is, right? right? But they mm-hmm. walk out of the cave in this story, right? This person who's been unshackled gets up, looks around, sees where they are, walks out of the cave. Mm-hmm. A few things are true. I guess the thesis of this story, we assume a few facts. One, that person can never go back to being shackled in the cave. Right. They'll never accept it. Right. They'll never accept returning to the reality of the the shadows on the on the wall. The other is that one of the first things that person's going to try to do is run inside and get the other people. Mm. And they're not going to accept what he's telling them. Mm-hmm. Right. And and kind of the uh, that as a social construct, as a human construct, is something I find very true. Um, I find it in a way inspirational um, because the story starts with kind of total um, oppression or uh, blindedness and at least at the end there's one right that's an i mean that's an improvement and it's not the improvement we want right the perfect story would be everyone gets unshackled and leaves the cave that'd be the perfect ending that'd be that'd be a disney put a bow on it but it isn't that because that's not really the way the world works and Mm. and i think with each piece of knowledge we have um we're more aware of the fact that in many other respects we're in a cave Right. Mm. In many other presumptions and, and things we know or believe or understand to be the case. And also, I think the frustration we all feel externally, maybe, but also internally um, when we have those breakthroughs. I mean, how how foolish must the man have thought when he walked out of the cave to have spent all his life inside of it? Right. Mm. And then how much of a fool he must have felt the others were to not get up and follow him outside. But just minutes ago, he was in the exact same position. Mm. The reason he's out of it really is nothing that he did besides that for exactly. some miraculous reason he was released from that circumstance, right? Mm. So that's one that's, that's stuck with me. I mean, I think that that can go into so many different places and and is really like a, it's where in my mind it became clear that taking in as much as you as you can can only be of benefit Hmm. and also not to feel frustration not necessarily not to feel but not not to put a hundred percent responsibility on those who don't already possess information you do right yeah no I'll, i'll certainly be be chewing on that one for a while but i think immediately it does it does really resonate and as as you you know i think very importantly put it's not only is it difficult for let's just say you know those that make it out to explain to those who have not how they got there or why it's worth trying to be there but also that a big part of the equation is that it's not it, it is kind of a matter of luck right the shackles just broke one day and it's not i think remembering that is important and if the story was that this individual came from a perspective of or or, you know came to these other people and said 
tried to take responsibility and say like this is how I broke out of these chains, you know, or this is, sure. this is what I did instead of being able to just say, this just happened. And this is how I got there. And I'm not really trying to say that I'm special because it happened to me. Right. But, th but this is the reality. This is the truth. And you need to follow me to see this through because where you are is not where you think you are. Um, so I, I definitely think it's a it's a wonderful thing to to leave the audience with, and I I'll have to pick that one up. I mean, it's not it's not a terribly different plot than the movie The Matrix. I mean, I think right. definitely yeah, has some inspiration, right? Um, but but no, I mean, I think in its kind of original and and in that form, yeah, as as you point to, there's a lot of every detail of it has a lot to say in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a it, it certainly sounds like an incredible story and one that obviously has stood the test of time for a reason. So, uh, yeah, I, I think we'll, we'll leave the audience with that, but I, I really do appreciate you coming on. This is, this has been a lot of fun so far and we should definitely give it another shot I'll soon as we clearly have much more to, to get into. Yeah. And, uh, I think your perspective is, is definitely a helpful one, even just for me as an individual to just kind of, have ideas to have someone to bounce ideas off of that has a bit of a different perspective and a background and, uh, you know, a day-to-day -day kind of processing. So hopefully we'll be able to do this again soon. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining. <laughs>